in prayer approach the throne of God. Amen. Gracious Father, first we uh, thank you for the privilege of prayer. And Lord, you are our Heavenly Father to those who believe. Lord, how can we who are born sinners, who can do nothing to please you, seek, let alone find glory, honor, and immortality? Lord, how can we be delivered from selfish ambition and disobedience to the truth? How can we escape your just wrath against sin? in your judgment. Lord, how can we affirm the pure righteousness of your law, which expresses your holy nature as written in scripture and in the human conscience? We know what is right and what is wrong. Yet more often than not, we find ourselves in the wrong and unable to do right. Lord, how thankful we are for Christ's work. And your spirit enabling us to put our trust in Jesus as Lord. In the moment we first believed, Lord, you granted us a new life, a new heart, and new holy affections. Now that we are regenerated, we now have by your gracious hand a new capacity to do what is good, what is honorable, and what is righteous. We praise you, Lord, that in Christ... We have been made acceptable and capable of pleasing you. In what better way, Lord, can we thank you? And for what greater end have we been made? Father, with humility, we seek always to remember that the will and the power to do right comes only from you. It does not come from our own selfish, sinful efforts. Lord, you are the immortal, invisible, and all-wise and most glorious God. Lord, you have sovereignly enabled us to know the truth, to love the truth, to live the truth, to proclaim the truth, and to worship you in spirit and in truth. Yet, Father, as we face the reality of our daily lives, we know that sin still exists within us and will seek to subdue us until we reach our heavenly glory. Lord, we mourn over our sin. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. We joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner man. Help us, Lord, to put off the old things and to put on the new. To put off the old man with his deeds and put on the new man, which is renewed after Christ. And Lord, may we be renewed in the spirit of our minds. May we take captive all things to the obedience of Christ. All of the ideologies and philosophies of this world that stand opposed to you. Lord, may we faithfully follow the humble example of Christ. May we love him sincerely. May we glory in his cross. May we pursue what is holy and shun all that is shameful and wicked 
and evil. Lord, give us courage and boldness combined with graciousness to confess the Redeemer before lost men and women. As we've been learning in our time of Bible study on biblical worldview, Lord, we always speak of how to confront loved ones, friends, co-workers, those who are lost. How to confront them lovingly with graciousness, biblical truth, our neighbors, co-workers, even our earthly adversaries. Lord, give us the courage and boldness to speak your truth, to not be afraid, to not worry about what man can do to us or what man can say about us. Lord, may we willingly bear Christ's reproach. May we clearly communicate his love. May we thoroughly be controlled by his spirit. May we faithfully walk in his steps. On our jobs, in our homes, with our family members, with our friends, out in the public square. Lord, fill us with divine wisdom from your word as we read it. Illuminate your truth to us. Help us, Father, to live in a way that presents Jesus Christ as all glorious and draw sinners to him. Father, we ask you this morning to continue to uh, look on Ms. Marianne St. John. She's a dear sister in Christ. We pray that you be with her. And Lord, we pray that you be with uh, Bob, her husband. He's very dear to us also, a dear, faithful brother in Christ. That you be with them both uh, this morning, this Lord's day, and each and every day, Lord. Encourage them by your spirit. We pray for the families of uh, ABC and Redeemer and Grace Fellowship and Mountain Brook and families here we pray for all of us Lord that we live in a way that presents Christ as all glorious that we live in a way in such a way Lord that they may see our good works and glorify you who is in heaven we pray for all of our shepherds who are leading our churches myself and Anthony and Carlton and, and elders at Grace and Phil Cody out at Iron City and Justin at uh, Mountain Brook all of the brethren Lord that you help us to shepherd your church well shepherd the flock of God to proclaim the clarity of the gospel especially in the times in which we are living now well, there's an outright assault on biblical truth, not just coming from outside the church, but coming from within the church too. those apostates, those who have uh, acquiesced to the world and who've caved and who've given in to secular culture and secular ideas and secular ideologies and philosophies. Lord, protect us against them also. And help us to protect our flock by proclaiming the truth in 
keeping away the wolves, exposing the wolves, and keeping them away from the flock of God. And Lord, I pray as I preach through this parable about the unforgiving servant that we examine our own hearts to see are we harboring unforgiveness against people? Has a root of bitterness sprung up in our hearts because of the sin of unforgiveness? Father, I pray that you may convict where you will, but also encourage the saints. And Lord, I pray that you will use the sermon to convict the unbelievers whose sins are still on them, that you may convict them and convince them of their need for a Savior, a Redeemer, and that you may use this message to bring salvation to them also. Lord, illuminate your word for us as we read and exegete this passage today. And may it be done to the praise of your glorious name. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Man, let us turn to the parable of the unforgiving servant. This is our continued uh, series in the parables of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. I hope you all had a chance to read this parable. It is a fairly well known, one of the more well known of the Lord's parables. And this one deals with uh, un, uh, the, the theme of forgiveness. It is in Matthew 18, uh, verses 21 through 35. And this is the unforgiving servant. So let's take a look here and read. And after that, we're going to do a few observations, several observations on the text. And then get into our two main principles. So this is from Matthew 18, 21. And this is the word of the living God. So then Peter came to him, Christ, and said, Lord, how often should my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot of money, by the way. Okay. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me, 
and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he showed, rather till he should pay the debt. But when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that he had done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. May the Lord bless his word and he who has ears to hear let him hear. A few observations here. I have several. Uh, Peter's question at the beginning of this um, leads to Christ's response and his theme on forgiveness. Peter said uh, seven times to go beyond the, the Jewish requirement of three times because, you know, Jews require uh, three times for one to be, you know, ask for forgiveness. So he was showing generosity and forgiveness, or so he thought that he was, by saying seven times as opposed to three times. But Jesus' reply indicated that forgiveness should be without number. That it should not be, it's not a counting contest. In this parable, the king is God. The servants are the subject in his kingdom. The 10,000 talents represent the extent of the servant's sinfulness. The denarii point to how little debt was owed by the servant to his master. So these are the different if you want to say characters in this parable. Again, the, the king is God. The servants are the subjects in the king's kingdom. The 10,000 talents represent the extent of the servant's sinfulness because it is an insurmountable amount. The denarii point to how little debt was owed by the fellow servant to his master in comparison to the 10,000 that he owed his master, 10,000 talents. Another observation is that in, in Old Testament times, uh, a talent was a unit of weight of about 75 pounds. Okay. In New Testament times, it was a unit of monetary uh, reckoning with a value of about 20 years wages for a laborer. So uh, a talent in New Testament times was about 20 years wages. Think about what you make times 20 years that were almost equal like a talent because a common laborer will earn about one denarius per day. So denarii is plural of denarius. So a, a common laborer, a, a, someone who's out in the field farming or reaping the harvest or whatever, they were basically common or day laborers as they called them in our times. They earned about one denarius per day, which is not uh, a lot. So the 10,000 talents would have been about 60 million days wages, <laughs> which would be impossible to repay. 
So this demonstrates the servant's hopeless predicament in why he came to the king begging uh, to not uh, have to pay that debt. Now, in antiquity, in ancient times, when a debt was owed, the debtor either had to sell his property to satisfy the debt or their family um, because slaves of the master had to work off the debt. So they either had to sell their property or sell their family to become slaves. Uh, they had basically it was slave debt. You went to slavery on someone, uh, you had to work off the debt that way. So it was either debt slavery or you had to sell all of your property in order to satisfy a debt. Either way, it was impossible for the servant who begged the king for forgiveness to pay back such a massive debt. I mean, he didn't have 10,000 talents worth of anything. But yet he still pleaded for patience and mercy of his master. Now, the forgiven servant was owed a relatively small amount in proportion to the amount that he was forgiven. While he owed his master the equivalent of 60 million uh, days wage, his fellow servant only owed him about 20 weeks uh, wages, the 100 denarii. That was about 20 weeks. So he owed him a minuscule amount compared to what the servant owed his king. And note that he found this servant. He seized him and choked him and demanded that the debt was owed for him. His, king, his master didn't do that to him. He came to his master pleading. But when his master forgave him, what did he do? He, he found his servant and, and choked him, laid hands on him, seized him, and demanded the debt that was owed him. So the servant was judged by the master because he did not extend the same forgiveness to his debtor that his master had showed him. And so therefore his master was just in his indignation. He was justified in his indignation. So those are just some observations from this passage. Uh, but the big idea that there are two central points in this parable. Number one, the gift of salvation is immeasurably great. It's immeasurably great. And number two, God's mercy is not effectual in unforgiving people. Effectual meaning it doesn't take effect in unforgiving people. His, his mercy doesn't take effect in unforgiving people. And we will see that dichotomy as we execute this passage. So our, our first principle is God's gift of salvation is immeasurably great. Off the top, we have to understand this. Every sin that we commit, every sin that we commit, no matter how big or how small, is a debt to God. Every sin we commit is a debt to God. The 10,000 talents point to the fact that sin against a holy God is costly. We make so light of sin. As uh, fallen people in general and as believers in particular, we, we, we make such a small deal of sin. All of us do. 
We don't think that our sins are costly. But they are. Sin is very costly. And the 10,000 talents uh, illustrates that. R.C. Sproul famously said that sin is cosmic treason against God. We're basically committing treason or betrayal when we sin against our holy God. It is cosmic treason. We're betraying our God. There is an account kept of the debt of sin. A question that we can ask or our heart cry should be, Lord, how much do we owe you? How much do we owe you? The servant in this parable was in a totally hopeless position. It was impossible for him to pay back his debt. Yet he pleaded for mercy from his master. It is impossible for us to pay back our sin debt to God. There is nothing that we can do to pay back our debt of sin. It's impossible. We're left helpless and hopeless. It's not the end of the story, but this is part of the gospel message that needs to be articulated, that needs to be heard, that needs to be known by us, that there's nothing that we can do to pay our sin debt that we owe God. No amount of works righteousness, no amount of good deeds, no amount of having a nice personality or character. No amount of any righteousness on our part can pay our sin debt. And, and, and that illustrates this servant in this parable. He was helpless. 10,000 talents is like, no, that's an impossible debt to pay. That is the cost of our sin. The debt of sin is a very great debt. Though some are in more debt, all are in debt still. The Bible testifies against us in Romans 3 and 23. Paul says this simply. For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. To sin means to miss the mark. We have all fallen short. And again, the debt of our sin is so great that we cannot even begin to repay it. This servant had nothing in which to repay his master. It says here. The servant therefore fell down before him and said, Master, have patience with me. Why do he ask for patience? Because he didn't, he didn't have the money. He knew that he could not pay the king, his master rather. He, he knew that he couldn't. The debt of our sin calls for the penalty 
of being captive to wrath and slavery. The wrath of God against sin and the slavery. Divine justice is deserved every time we sin. Paul tells us the wages of sin is what? Is death. Divine justice is deserved every single time we sin. We deserve death. Every time we sin, we deserve death. Divine justice is always deserved because God is holy and he cannot tolerate sin. This servant in this parable was at the total mercy of his master. Because he had a debt that he could not possibly pay. And so are we as we stand before God. We have a debt that we cannot pay. Now convinced sinners. Or convicted sinners have no other choice. But to humble themselves under and plead for God's mercy. When a sinner is convicted and convinced of his sin, he has no other choice but to humble himself under and plead for God's mercy. When the Holy Spirit convicts and convinces, salvation is given by God by grace through faith. That's what we ought to pray for our unbelieving family members, friends, co-workers, that, that, that the Lord convicts them and convinces them of their sins. Because guess what? Until they do that, they're not coming. Until they're convicted and convinced of their sin. That you're sinning against a holy God. Your debt is so great that you can't do anything good to pay back that debt. Because what do a lot of people say? Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do some good stuff. You know, I'll give to the poor. I'll go volunteer somewhere. I'll do some nice things. And, you know, when I stand before God, he'll give me a little wink, wink, nod, nod, and, and say enter in. That's, that's what people think. They may not say it, but that's what they think, that they can do enough good works to build up, quote, good karma. Yeah, if I just have enough good karma, which is unbiblical, but... They don't realize that they cannot pay their sin debt no matter what they do, no matter what kind of good they try to do, no matter how nice they try to be, no matter how much they try to go to church and think that they're checking off a box. They're still in sin and they still have their debt load of sin on them that they cannot possibly take off. You lovingly let them know that. Look, you have a debt that you owe that you cannot pay, that you can't possibly pay. There's nothing that you can do to pay that sin debt to God. You owe God. And there's nothing you can do about it. The Holy Spirit has to convict them and convince them. And when he does that, guess what? They will come to Christ. So look at this plea right here. 
The first thing he pleads for is what? Patience. His master, here in verse 26, have patience with me. God is patient and long-suffering. He was patient with Israel. I mean, man, when we studied through where Exodus and, and uh, Leviticus and, and saw how patient God was with Israel in the wilderness those 40 years, how patient he was with them when they built the golden calf in Genesis, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, in uh, Exodus 32 where they, they built the golden calf. When they took off all their jewelry and Aaron told them to, you know, met all our jewelry, let's build this golden calf. And they, they worshiped this calf. They were dancing and carousing, saying, this is he who, uh, this is who brought us out of Egypt. They rebelled against God. God could have just opened the earth and swallowed all two or three million of them just like that. But he was what? He was merciful. He was patient. First, he heard their cries. In the earlier parts of Exodus, where he told Moses that Moses heard the cries of his people. They were, they were crying to be delivered. They were in uh, slavery for 400, over 400 years. And God heard their cries. And what did he do? He delivered them. Why? Because he is merciful and he is gracious. He had mercy on this stiff-necked people. Because he made a covenant promise with their father, Abraham. That he would make him a great nation. And he did that. So the patience part. Why do he plead for patience? Because God is patient and long suffering. He was patient with Israel. Jesus was patient with the twelve. God is patient. You tell the unbelieving friends and family members. Guess what? God is patient with you. I'm patient with you too, <laughs> but God is more patient because salvation doesn't come from me. It comes from God. You know how patient God has been with you as much as you sin and rebel against him? Do you know that he's long suffering? Tell him. God is patient. He's patient with me as one of his children. He has, he has to deal with me and, and my spouse, uh, spouse of unbelief and doubt and, and, and uh, excessive worrying and, and, and prayerlessness, seasons of prayerlessness and, and, uh, and, 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 and my foolish rebellions that I get into sometimes. He's patient with me too because I'm his child. Just like a parent becomes impatient with their child, but that doesn't change that parent's love for that child the same way God is with his children. How many times did Jesus tell his disciples, oh, you of little faith? He told them that in Matthew 6 about not worrying. Will he not much more take care of you, oh, you of little faith? That was a chiding. He was, he was chiding them for having little faith in, 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 in uh, God's uh, provision for them. So God does the same with us. He's very patient with us, but he is especially patient with sinners. Because they deserve death on the spot for their rebellion against him. But guess what? He shows great patience. So this servant, he pleads for patience. And then the next plea is for payment. He says here, and I will pay you all.
The attitude of all convicted people, supposing that they can pay God back for their sins with good works in hopes of appeasing his divine wrath. That's the attitude that this man takes. He thinks somehow that he can pay back his master. Okay, Siri, I'll say it again. So, again, Siri. He was saying that he thought that he could pay God back for his sins with works. That's what he thought. And he could pay them back to appease the divine wrath of, of God, or in this case, his master. All convicted people, those who are not believers, they think they can pay God back with their works. That they can do something to please and appease the wrath of God. They seek their own righteousness. That's what they try to do. They seek their own righteousness. Paul says in Romans 10 and 3. He says for they being ignorant of God's righteousness. And seeking to establish their own righteousness. Have not submitted to the righteousness of of God you have people who are convicted of their sins and they try to assuage that guilt by doing works of righteousness and they think ah oh, God will be pleased with this but they know I mean so they can't repay God this is pride this is not humility. It's pride to think that. Because it says here back in verse 25. But as he was not able to pay. Although he said he would pay. He, he knew that way. He was not able to pay. So if, you're not, if you know you're not able to pay. Why are you going to say that you can pay it back? The sinner. The convicted sinner. Is unable to pay God back. But yet he still thinks that he can. Or she can. But they cannot. And what do we see. In the master's response here. So we have the attitude of convicted sinners. Represented by. This servant. And then we have the response of. The master. First of all we see pardon. It says. The master of that servant was moved with what? Compassion. He set no conditions. He ignored the pleas. You notice in his parable, he didn't address what he said about paying them back and all those things. He freely forgave. He demonstrates pure grace. So the master's response is pardon. Compassion is shown by the master for he knows that the servant can't pay back all that he owes. He had compassion on him. And compassion doesn't mean like pity, like, oh, you poor little thing. No, that's, that's not biblical compassion. Okay, so he had compassion on him. God knows that we are weak, that we are feeble. 
He knows that he knows our frame. As the Bible says, he knows our frame that we are dust. <laughs> That's what we are. We're like grass that withers. God knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. He knows that we're weak. We're feeble. He knows that we're not able to deal with the reckoning of our sin debt. God knows that we can't deal with our sin. We can't deal with the debt of our sin. We can't deal with the cost that our sin incurs. We can't just uh, grin and bear it when it comes to our sin. God knows that we cannot handle it. And so what did he do? He sent his son to be the guarantor of our sin debt. Praise the Lord. God knew that we couldn't deal with our sin ourselves. So who did he send? He sent his son, Jesus Christ. That's why I said earlier, it, it, it gets better. Once we know, hey, we can't pay our sins back. It's impossible for you to do anything to pay back your sin debt. That's not where it ends. God sent his son to do what? To pay your debt. He sent his son to be the, the guarantor of our sin debt. He, he paid it in full. He paid it in full. This master on his own volition chose to show compassion. Because he knew that this man couldn't possibly pay this debt. He is merciful because he chose to show mercy. Exodus 33, 19. The Lord said that I will make my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. No one can tell God when to show compassion. He does it of his own will. We can plead for his compassion, but it's up to him to show it or to extend it. In this passage, this king chose to show compassion because guess what? He did not have to do that because his servant owed so much money. But rather, he had compassion on him. And what does this show? What does this mean? The pardon means that God forgives the greatest sins. No matter how heinous or how great the number. We cannot out sin God's grace. No sin is too great for his grace and mercy to cover. This is a great truth. You have a lot of people walking around, unbelievers and unfortunately Christians, who think that, man, I just really blew it. God's, God's never going to forgive me for that. We cannot outsee in God's grace. For Christians, we should already know that. We, our sins have, all, have been expiated. They've been taken out of us. We've been justified. We have the righteousness of Christ 
imputed or put on us, placed on us. But you have unbelievers that think that, man, they just blew it. The, the mother who aborted her baby. Multiple abortions. She, she probably feels that I can never be forgiven. Yes, she can. The person who believed the lies of, of the so-called transgender movement and who have mutilated their bodies or have chemically destroyed themselves, they probably feel, man, I, I, I blew it. Yes, you may have caused irreversible damage to your body, but that does not mean that God can't forgive you of your sin if you come to him. the man or woman or a child that's been living in open rebellion against God in all different types of ways. Our loved ones who seem to have hardened their hearts, who, who, who don't care about you talking about Christ and, and, and the church and how much you love your church and how much you, how much you love and cherish Christ. And, and they, they don't care. They don't be bringing all that religious conversation uh, my way. I, I don't want to hear all that church stuff. I don't, I don't want to hear about all that. You know what? They're not beyond the grace of God. They too can have their sins forgiven. God forgives the greatest sins no matter how heinous or no matter how great the number. He can forgive the sins of the serial rapists who's serving a life sentence. Yes, he still has to serve his life sentence. He has to, he has to uh, bear the punishment and consequences of his sins, but his sins can still be forgiven. We as Christians of all people should know that. Paul himself said that he was the what? Chief of sinners. He said that in, in 1 Timothy 1, I think 15, 16. This is a trustworthy saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He called himself the foremost of sinners. Why? Because he was a persecutor of the church of God. He saw himself as the chief of sinners, as the worst of sinners. But what did God do? God saved him. Read it. Isn't Acts the ninth chapter on that road to Damascus when he was on his way to persecuting the church and he saw the risen Christ? And he was a persecutor of the church, which was a very grave sin. So we see in this king right here, it says he what? He released him and forgave him the debt. And that is what God does. His grace. He gives us grace to cover our sins. That's what he does in saving us. Now, what do we do with that? God's grace to cover sins is not to be trampled underfoot by increased sin, but by gratitude. Unbelievers should be giving thanks to God. <laughs> instead of trampling his grace under their feet. Boy, 
Lord, thank you for your patience and mercy with me. It should be the hard cry of unbelievers. Paul said in Romans 2 that, uh, know you not that the goodness of God leads to repentance? Why is God good to the unbeliever? So that they may what? Repent. Why is he good to the unsaved? So that they may turn to him and be saved. That's why he is good to them. Through common grace, he blesses them. To be able to work, to be able to raise children, to be able to have a family. To be able to provide for their families. His goodness to them is for the purpose of bringing them to repentance. We're not to take it and trample it under our feet. So we see the master's response. And if you notice, the servant doesn't deny his debt. He doesn't excuse it. And he doesn't evade it. He owns it. He sees it and he pleads for mercy. That is a work that God has to do in the heart of a convicted sinner. That convicted sinner is not going to excuse his sin. He's going to own it. He's not going to duck and dodge it. He's going to say, yes, I have sinned against you, Lord. It's like when Nathan the prophet went to David. When uh, God had, had sent Nathan to, to David to uh, you know, expose David's sin. When he sinned against uh, Bathsheba and had her husband um, Uriah killed. David, uh, Nathan told him that parable. And uh, David said that that man in that parable that took that ewe lamb from that poor man, you know, something should be done to him. And then Nathan told him, you are that man. And David said, I have sinned against the Lord. He didn't excuse it. He owned it. A person who's truly convicted of their sins, guess what? They're going to own it. Just like this man did. He owned it. He didn't try to excuse it or rationalize it or talk himself out of it. He pleaded for mercy. That is how a convicted sinner does. He just says, Lord, have mercy on me and save me. That's when you know that the spirit is working in their heart. Because they realize the seriousness of their sin and the debt of their sin. And they know that they have nothing more than to just fall on the mercy of God. Amen. Second principle here, God's mercy is not effectual in unforgiving people. So, this servant is forgiven. A large debt, insurmountable. So what does he do? He has a servant who owes him. Does he go and forgive him? It says here, but that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. The servant searches for one of his debtors. How soon is the grace he received for his debt forgotten? How soon? After his master forgives him, how soon he forgets that act of grace? When he pleaded and, and, and you know, pled, please be patient with me. And his master forgives him. And how soon he forgets, right? The servant was owed a relatively little 
amount compared to what he owed his master. You know, this is a weak illustration, but it's like you owe somebody a thousand dollars. Man, I, I, I'm sorry, man. I, I, you know, I, I just don't have it. I'm, you know, I can't pay that much back. Okay, man, you good? You good? And then you go to somebody that owes you a dollar. Where my dollar at? You better give me my dollar and then start beating them down for that dollar, right? Beat them down. Put them in the hospital over a dollar. Now, we are not to seek revenge. We are still to forgive our neighbors. That's what this illustrates. Though we don't make light of our neighbor's offenses, we are still to forgive them at once and not seek revenge. Do you know that the, uh, the withholding forgiveness is a, is a way of seeking revenge? It's a backdoor way of trying to exact vengeance on someone by not forgiving them. That's what it looks like. For Christians, forgiveness is wholehearted and it is constant. It is not to be calculated or measured out. When Peter said, Seven times, and Jesus said, uh, seven, 70 times seven. He wasn't saying that there's a certain amount of forgiveness that you can ascend. He was in essence saying that it, it should not even be counted. You shouldn't count how many times you've forgiven someone. As Christians, we are to forgive constantly. Always. But this man didn't do that. So look at this, the, the treatment of the, the, the servant, how he treated his debtor. It says here that he would lay hands on him in verse 28 and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. No. He seized him, he choked him, and he demanded payment from him. His master didn't deal with him in such a way. Did he? He did not. So what did the debtor do? He fell to the ground. He pleaded for patience. And he promised to repay the debt. Doesn't this sound familiar? If you look back at verse 26. This is what this same servant did. The servant fell before him saying. Master have patience with me. And I will pay you all. And what did his debtor say? His fellow servant Verse 29, fell down at his feet and begged them, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. The same thing. This should have rung into this man's ears. It should have reminded him of the position that he was just in. But no, 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 no. We see instead the servant's unforgiveness. Apparently, the compassion shown him by his master had no effect on his conscience. That's what I mean by this point that God's mercy is not effectual in unforgiving people. They don't understand mercy. They don't understand God's mercy at all. Look at verse 30. It says, and he would not. 
But he instead what through him in debtor's prison. But went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So he threw him to debtor's prison. He would not forgive him. He would not show mercy on him. Unmerciful sinners do not understand grace. They don't. Instead, they harden their hearts. They are past feeling, as the scripture says. They forget that their debt to God is greater than their neighbor's debt to them. And understand this, our debt to God is greater than someone's debt to us. Our sin debt is greater to God than someone's debt to us and sinning against us. But unmerciful sinners don't understand that. The unlimited mercy of God is not effectual in their lives. It means little to them. They could care less. They tire of hearing apologies and pleadings for mercy from their fellow man. They lack compassion. They lack pity. And they lack mercy. This reminds me of the woke mob and, and um, you know, I was reading some articles last night just reminding myself of, of, of people who've kind of gone um, against, like, uh, the quarterback Drew Brees, you know, New Orleans Saints quarterback who spoke out against uh, people um, protesting the flag, you know, uh, football players and stuff protesting the flag and he spoke out against them and as soon as that woke mob got to him he came back groveling and apologizing but at that point they're not forgiving wokeness has no forgiveness wokeness has no atonement for your sin of violating their religious principles because it is a religion you say something that's biblically true or just logically true and then they come after you and they say you know I, 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 I apologize I need to I need to learn I need to sit down and listen you know I was wrong I'm sorry for offending the LGBT community by saying that men can't get pregnant I need to learn I need to listen I need to educate myself but those people can care less because forgiveness is not part of one of their religious principles. They want to destroy you. They want you to lose your job. They want you to lose your livelihood. There's no forgiveness with the woke mob. They can care less. If you, it, It's no use of even apologizing because they don't care about that. The fact that you're apologizing is giving them exactly what they want. But what you originally said was true. But that's the way the world operates. If you go against their narratives, their quote truth, they try to, as they call, cancel you, get you fired, deplatform you, as they call it, in social media terms because there is no compassion there's no pity and there is no mercy 
with them. It's funny, I was looking at, uh, I was reminding myself of, it was in 2019, this man named Botham Jean, he was, he was shot by this uh, off-duty Texas cop it was back in 2019. She uh, went to the wrong apartment and thought that it was her apartment, and she ended up killing uh, Botham Jean. And, of course, as the media always does, they make it about race because the, the lady was white and Botham Jean is black, but, you know, he's Haitian. And so they made it about race and racism and all that, blah, blah, blah. And she was uh, convicted. She was sentenced to, to 10 years in prison for, uh, you know, manslaughter because it wasn't premeditated murder. Uh, but at the at the trial, uh, when she was uh, sentenced, the brother of the deceased victim walked up to her and asked her, can I give you a hug? And he hugged the lady, and she cried and boohoo. They cried and boohoo, and he said that he forgave her. Said, I, you know, that I forgive you. He says he said that I can't carry that weight around. That's what he said. He said I can't carry that weight around. And this was the brother of the young man who was uh, who was shot and killed. Uh, Dylan Roof, who went into that church in Charleston and killed those nine people uh, in Bible study. Uh, some of the the uh, Families of the deceased at his uh, trial when he was sentenced, they extended forgiveness to him. Although he had killed their loved ones because he was a, he was an devout racist, you know, white supremacist, whatever. But they still forgave him. But do you know that there were articles saying that they shouldn't have done that, or that he didn't deserve forgiveness. Just like that police officer uh, that killed Botham John, uh, that they were saying that uh, she didn't deserve forgiveness. That there were people actually saying that it was something wrong with that. Do you know the world is astonished? Those who are unbelievers, they're astonished when people forgive other people for harming them or, or killing a loved one and Different things like that. They're, they're astonished by that. Why? Because there's no pity. They, they say they're compassionate, but they're not. Leftists are not compassionate people like they say they are. Secularists are not compassionate at all. They have all the pronouns behind their names. They can have all the flags up that they want, but they are not compassionate people. Because they hate God. And they hate true compassion and true mercy. But those of us who are of the book. We know. That we must show mercy and forgiveness. But this servant didn't do that. And we have to understand this. That uh, those who lack compassion. Those who uh, lack pity and mercy. They are in a greater position of judgment and condemnation than they realize. The parable shows us this. So look at the master's response. Verse 32. Okay, so his other fellow servants uh, snitched on him, as, as the young people say. You know, they say snitches get stitches, right? Well, they didn't get stitches. They, they snitched on him. Verse uh, 31 says so when his fellow servants saw what he had done they were very aggrieved and they because guess what they probably owe great debts too and they came and told their master all that he had done so his master 
after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant. So the master first, he rebukes his servant for his unmerciful heart. He is a wicked servant. Note the parallel that Christ make, makes between the lack of mercy and wickedness. Unmercifulness is wickedness, even great wickedness. He says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. So he was correlating being unforgiving, being unmerciful with wickedness. Why? Because he did not consider how much he was forgiven. He didn't even think about it. He didn't even care. Jesus said this in Luke 7 and 47. Therefore I say to you. Her sins which were many. And it's talking about a woman who had, had, had washed his feet and everything. Uh, that she had known that Christ's feet with oil and Christ had forgave her. That's the context of this. But Luke 7 and 47 says. Therefore I say to you. Her sins which are many. Are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. In other words, those who are forgiven much should what? Forgive much. This servant was forgiven very exceedingly much. So the, his master was indignant because... He says, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? He expects the servant to show mercy because he received mercy. And such is the expectation of all believers from God. God expects us as believers to do what? To show mercy. Why? Because God has shown mercy to us. We should be the most merciful people because, Lord, we have been shown the greatest of all mercy. So this servant is wicked. Unforgiveness is wickedness. Lack of mercy is wickedness. So what does he do? He sentences the wicked servant to his just due punishment for his unmerciful act. His master was angry, verse 34, and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Mm. The only punishment feasible for him is to pay his own sin debt, which is the torment of hell. For the unforgiven, hell is the means by which their sin debt is paid, though it will never be fully paid. This is a fact of hell that you should know, believer. It is not a place of suffering and weeping and gnashing of teeth, but hell is the way, the means by which the unbeliever's sin debt is paid. 
although it'll never be fully paid. Why? Because hell is eternal. It's not like they're in hell until their their debt is paid and then they they're out and then no. No, they're in hell forever. Because that's the weight of their sin. That's how much their sin costs. That's why we plead with them to be saved. Because you can't pay your debt. And if you can't pay it here, if you don't come to Christ, you're going to pay it forever in hell for all of eternity. That is the reality of hell. That it is the debt of their sin being paid forever. And it would never be paid. The fires of hell would never be quenched or extinguished. So this man was delivered to the tortures until he should pay all that was due him. Matthew Henry says this. He says, our debts to God are never compounded. Either all is forgiven or all is exacted. Glorified saints in heaven are pardoned all through Christ's complete satisfaction. Condemned sinners in hell are paying all that is are punished for all. So this servant's judgment is a picture of hell. All of their payment will be paid in hell. Not in part, but all of it. And then in verse 35, Jesus gives basically the interpretation. He says, so my heavenly father also would do to you, each of you rather, from the heart, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So what's the interpretation? Number one, it is the heavenly father who forgives us our sins. It is also the heavenly father who withholds forgiveness of sins. Matthew Henry said, when we pray to God as our father in heaven, we are taught to ask for the forgiveness of sins as we forgive our debtors. Just as it says in the in the prayer, you know, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We ask God to forgive us our sins as we forgive those who what trespassed against us. We don't pray and ask God to forgive our sins, but then don't forgive the sins of those who've sinned against us. No. God forgives us of our sins, and we forgive those who've sinned against us. Number two, it is our duty to forgive from our heart. That's what he said here. Each of you from his heart. We don't forgive because we're supposed to. We don't forgive because we have to or because the Bible tells us that is wrong. That is not having the right motive. We don't say, oh, I'm going to forgive them because I have to. No. Well, you know, the Bible says forgive, so I might as well forgive. Well, I'm supposed to forgive, so I'm going to forgive. No. That's not biblical. That's not what the Bible says. Forgiveness must come from where? The heart. You, you must mean it. You must want to do it. You want to be obedient. You do it to be obedient to God. We simply forgive because we've been forgiven. Because we love. Because we're being like our Heavenly Father. 
We must seek their good. And realization of this cultivates a heart of forgiveness. We must seek the good of the person that we're forgiving by forgiving them. Forgiveness is not about us. It's about seeking the good of our neighbor by forgiving them. Number three, it is God's justice to punish the unforgiving. Jesus gives a solemn warning to his disciples. So shall your heavenly father do. That's what he says. Those who do not forgive their brother's trespasses, guess what? They did never truly repent of their own. Neither ever truly believed the gospel. This is what Matthew Henry said. And therefore they shall have judgment without mercy. That have shown no mercy. Only those who have truly repented of their own sins. Truly forgive others. Because guess what? We understand what it means to be forgiven. So because we understand what it means to Uh, to be forgiven guess what we do we forgive because we understand what it means to be truly forgiven Lord you forgave me of all my sins how or why should I withhold forgiveness when you've forgiven me so much how many of y'all how many of us can agree that God has forgiven us of so much he's forgiven us so much He is so, man, I mean, he is so good. So why do we in turn withhold forgiveness from others? That's a sin. That's demonstrating that you are not truly regenerate. Those of us who don't show mercy, we won't be shown mercy. James 2 and 13 says, For judgment is without mercy to those to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We show mercy because we are the recipients of mercy. Implications. How do we know? That we've forgiven someone from the heart. Luke 6, 27 through 36. Kind of answers that question. I'll let you read that. I won't um, read that for you. It basically talking about loving your enemies. Doing good to those who hate you. Blessing those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. Uh, That discourse in Luke. I, I would encourage you to read that. How do you know you've forgiven them from the heart? Because you do good to those. Who don't do good to you. You love your enemies. You do good to those who hate you. You bless those who curse you. And you pray for those who spitefully use you. How are we, how we even able to do that? When God saves us. When he regenerates our heart. Number two. This is a good one. Forgive quickly. Jesus said in Matthew 5 and 25. Agree with your adversary quickly. While you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer 
and you are thrown into prison. Agree with your adversary quickly. Forgive quickly. In other words, don't harbor. Don't fester. Don't let it fester. Because if you let it fester, it will become a root of bitterness. It can lead to despondency because you carry around all this unforgiven sin, all these people who have offended you and who've, who've hurt you and done you wrong, and you're just walking around harboring all this animosity against them. What does Jesus say? You forgive quickly. Agree with your adversary quickly. Number three, forgive mercifully. Luke 6 and 36. Therefore, be merciful just as your father is merciful. And lastly, forgive restoratively. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. The purpose of forgiveness is ultimately restoration. Now, if a person doesn't want to do that, then that's fine. But you do your part. The purpose of forgiveness is restoration. I've had people who've done me wrong in my life and I've forgiven them and I try in most cases to restore those relationships. It's not always the same but at least forgiving them is the first part. If they don't want to be restored then that's fine. If they moved on with their life then that's fine but at least I forgive. That is what God calls us to do. Amen. Let us pray. Father, there are probably many of us in here who have been hurt by people, but we also have hurt people. We've wronged people and people have wronged us. Lord, we ask, I ask that None of us in here are harboring unforgiveness or who are being unmerciful. But Lord, that we seek to forgive quickly. That we forgive mercifully. And Lord, we thank you most of all that you have forgiven us our sin debt. That you sent your son Jesus Christ. To pay. Our debt that we. Could not possibly pay back. And Lord we pray for our unbelieving. Friends. Family members. Loved ones. Co-workers. Lord that you may have mercy on them. That they. That you may convict them of their sins. And, and convince them Lord that. They can't do anything to pay the penalty for their sins. That they owe a debt to you that they would not possibly be able to pay. Lord, that you may save them through our gospel witness. Save them through hearing this sermon or other uh, solid sermons about this topic. That you save them, Lord, from their sins. 
Give them a new heart, a new nature. And Lord, thank you for the gracious forgiveness that we have all been recipients of. Lord, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for showing us what it looks like. Empower us by your spirit to be those who forgive. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.